So good evening, LCM. Good evening. The rich biblical history that has been handed down to us, well, in large part, it's due to the work of men like Ezra and Nehemiah. We're indebted to them. Each of us stands indebted to these men that have gone before us and that have stood the test so that a crown of victory awaits them in the world to come. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us by saying, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. It is our aim to show the same assurance of things hoped for and possess the conviction of things not seen in our present circumstances that Nehemiah does in our chapter tonight. He is commended by the word of God and by our mutual father. Now, four centuries after Nehemiah's time, another Jew named Hillel taught this principle in slightly different words. It is hard for us not to consider that he was reflecting on Nehemiah's example. Look at our first slide together with us tonight. This is from the Pirkei Avot 25b. In a place in which there are no men, try to act like a man. That's good advice right there. You guys remember, Nehemiah left a position of immense importance. It had acceptance and even notoriety in his life in order to engage fully in a work for Adonai that would not be fully appreciated in his lifetime. This is holy and this is masculine. Yeah. He sets an example that should be fully emulated today. Now, there are seven discernible steps in the pursuit of masculine holiness that were displayed in the men of old, from Adam to Nehemiah, that are still taught in our community today. Let's take the first of our seven. We must know our purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Nehemiah knew his purpose and achieved the purpose for which he was sent. And so must every man. Say man. Man. Every man called by God. Our second step in our pursuit of masculine holiness is that we must live in the presence of God. Exodus 33:15 speaks to this. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Nehemiah lived in recognition of the presence of Adonai in his every action. So must every man called by God. So we are standing in a time where there is a void of masculine holiness. And as Hillel said, If you find yourself standing in a place where there are no men, seek to be one. We're outlining steps that are in our marriage counseling, that are in our masculine holiness teaching, that are identifiable in the life of Nehemiah, 
all the way back to Adam, any man who ever did the will of God. We're now on our third step. We must demonstrate faithfulness in our job. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. Come on. As working for the Lord, not men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Nehemiah expended himself before men, in the eyes of men, in the presence of men. And he did it with all of his heart because he knew that faithfulness in his own occupation was in fact serving the Lord. So must every man called by God. Our fourth step in masculine holiness is that we must cultivate the best in our co-laborers. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You see, Nehemiah cultivated the best in his co-laborers. In even the most difficult circumstances, he cultivated the best. So must every man called by God. The fifth one. We must protect from all physical and spiritual harm. Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Nehemiah protected the family of God from both physical and spiritual threats. And so must every man called by God. Let's take our sixth one. We must fully possess the word that God himself spoke to us. John 15, 7 and 8 says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Nehemiah did not waver in his mission or compromise in his actions because he was commissioned by God, and he lived in full commitment some of the time? No! All of the time. So must every man called by God. Our seventh step towards masculine holiness that we must teach the word through both our example and our words. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Nehemiah demonstrated the truth of the word, both the Arabs, Ammonites, Samaritans, and Jews alike, each with equal fervor and conviction. He did not have mixed, muddled, or muddied responses when facing misplaced alliances and obvious compromises. Nehemiah kept the wellspring of his heart unpolluted by the masses around him. And so must every man called of God. So you will remember that during the time that I was gone, 
These brothers taught that Nehemiah held a position of cupbearer to the king. This was the king of the known world and the head of the Persian Empire. I'd like to revisit a slide with you to refresh your memory. The cupbearer in ancient Near Eastern court held a very important position. He had direct access to the king and thus had great influence. Text in relief described cupbearers in Assyrian and Persian courts. The cupbearer was in close proximity to the king's harem and thus was often a eunuch. Although there is no evidence that this was the case for Nehemiah. Somebody say amen. amen. Later sources identify the cupbearer as a wine taster. In addition, he was the bearer of the signet ring and was the chief financial officer. Whether or not Nehemiah was castrated is a matter of debate, but it is beyond all contestation that Nehemiah demonstrates incredible testicular fortitude in all of his faithful actions. Nevertheless, every matter should be established by two or more witnesses. So let's look at a second source that confirms the high calling of Nehemiah. Extra biblical references that mention the office of cupbearer in the Persian court have revealed that this was a position second only in authority to the king. Nehemiah was not only the chief treasurer and keeper of the king's signet ring, but he also tasted the king's food to make sure no one had poisoned it. The cupbearer in later Achaemenid times was to exercise even more influence than the commander-in-chief. So Nehemiah demonstrates incredible chutzpah in all of his actions. From the historical perspective, this is because he regularly shared the cup of the king. From a Ramez point of view, this is because he knew what it was to share the cup of Adonai. See, one of our aims tonight is that you come to understand that you share the cup of Jesus Christ. Amen. This will cause your security in the call and confidence to perform the necessary actions of the call to rise in the kind of holy masculinity found in Nehemiah. Yeah. One of our favorite concepts displayed in Nehemiah's life is that every time he found himself in a moral vacuum, it is clear that Nehemiah resolved himself not to defame the name of Adonai through his actions. In fact, his prayer was often simply, remember me, oh my God. Come on. Perhaps you find yourself sitting in this room tonight, and the first step that we talked about to masculine holiness is a glaring problem for you. You do not yet know what your purpose is. Tonight, start by finding your chutzpah. Come on. Amen. Reach down and grab hold of two testimonies. That will help you get started. You've shared the cup of the king through communion. That's the first one. And your every action will be remembered by your God. Come on! This will allow you to begin to move with conviction and discover the process that will lead you into the holy masculinity of Nehemiah and Nehemiah's God. So there's a timeline that we have promised to show you every week. And we're going to uphold that promise. 
This is our three returns from Exile slide. Notice the blue box on the right side of the screen with Nehemiah at the top. This is the time frame that we're in. So you know that we are in the third wave of returning exiles back to Jerusalem. You also know that this wave corresponds to establishing your strength in faithful actions. <coughs> now let's refresh the events of Nehemiah's journey toward letting the world know that he was not castrated spiritually, but possessed an enormous Come on. Amen. Come on. Time to slide for you that you haven't seen before. It's called The Events of Nehemiah's Journey. We ripped this right from pulpit commentary and added a few things for clarity that is highlighted. Nehemiah leads Susa and Nassan, probably towards the middle or close of the month, for his preparations must have taken him some time. This is just after Passover, those days. He would be likely to be nearly three months in his journey and would thus reach Jerusalem about the middle of July, say July 15th. His journey occurred during the time of Pentecost, removing through the calendar. And he then rested three days, surveyed the wall, laid his plan before the nobles, arranged the working parties, and set to work. Yeah. Now these three days, they served as his resetting period before the reestablishment of the strength of the nation. It was his object to hasten matters as much as possible. And he may well have commenced the rebuilding within 10 days of his arrival. 52 days from July 25th would bring him to September 15th, which corresponds as nearly as may be to the 25th of Elul. Now, Elul is the sixth month in the Hebrew calendar, and it is a time of reflection prior to the full atonement and restoration of the nation of Israel that occurs in the seventh month, which is Tishri which is also corresponding to the trumpet call, atonement, and tabernacles that all take place there. Thus, the story of Nehemiah is taking you from a pre-Passover view, through Passover, through Pentecost, and all the way into the restoration of the nation. In other words, it is the journey of a believer. Nehemiah 1 records Nehemiah becoming aware of the state of Jerusalem through the witness and the arrival of his brother Hanani, who happened to love God more than most men do. This is very much like the beginnings of your spiritual journey, when you became aware of your spiritual state through the witness of a faithful brother that loves the Lord more than most men do. Nehemiah 2 occurs about four months later during Nisan, which is the month of Passover. Nehemiah left on a mission of restoration immediately after experiencing the Passover. This is very much like the mission that you have been on since your spiritual awakening. When you set out as a redeemed son to rebuild the nation of God after experiencing the Passover. The journey from the courts of the king and unto the work of God occurred during the time of Pentecost for Nehemiah. This directly corresponds to the time of harvest and empowerment that you are experiencing on your journey towards the work of God. Yeah. Nehemiah 3 gives us an overview of the completion of the work in advance of the story's unfolding. This directly corresponds to the scriptures that tell you the outcome of our journey in advance of us actually experiencing it. Yeah. Now you'll remember that Nehemiah chapter 4, 5, and 6 all detail the kinds of opposition and trials that the people experienced while they were completing the work. 
This corresponds to the epistles in our own Bible that tell us about the various trials that we must endure to complete the work of God. So the historical account verifies that Nehemiah embarked on the journey after Passover, that he journeyed during Pentecost, and that the work was completed in the month of Elul, just in time for the full celebration of trumpets, atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles that all signal the full redemption of Israel. You see, the work before us is vast, and it seems impossible to complete. However, that is only true when you view it as the job of a singular person or a singular leader. That's true. The historical example before us demonstrates that the journey took longer than the actual work of completing the wall. Y'all catch that? This is because Nehemiah was an effective leader and did not view his job as completing the task by himself. His view was much more like Jesus Christ. He purified, he empowered, and he inspired every man to take up their own God-given responsibility to the project. Nehemiah commissioned others in the great calling of Adonai. Somebody say amen. When every man became equally involved in the task, it only took 52 days. The impossible had become possible. Here is one commentator's accounting of the distribution of the work. There is no difficulty in supposing that the wall could have been repaired in this space, talking about the space of 52 days. The materials were ready at hand. The working parties were numerous. The workmen, full of zeal. Yeah. If we estimate the circumference of the wall at four miles, which is probably beyond the truth, and the working parties at 42, it will follow that each party had, on the average, to repair 168 yards. Or, at the rate of between two, or I'm, I'm sorry, at the rate of between three and four yards a day. There was probably no work done on the Sabbath, and there may have been one or two days of interruption when attack seemed imminent, see Nehemiah 4, but otherwise the work was carried on without pause from early dawn to dark. So in order for Nehemiah's work, which is emblematic of the work of Jesus Christ, to be completed on schedule, all that was needed was men, say men, men, men that were numerous, and full of zeal. Church, we have a great need before us tonight, and it is one that we know Adonai will empower you to rise and meet. Here's the first one. The kingdom needs you to be a man. Yeah. Equally as important as our is our second great need. As a man, say man. Man. A little bit lower. Like a man. Like a man. You must join in your apportioned share of the Great Commission. The very thing that might seem impossible becomes entirely possible when every man joins with other men to accomplish it. All right, man of God. Come on. You're man of God, right? Yes. On this house, it's time that we reach down and that we grab hold of exactly two. Two. Not three, Michael. But two, two testimonies that help to define your holy masculinity. 
We want you to stand up on your feet with us for a moment. Get a good wide stance. Now say, just the men. You don't need to stand for this, sweetheart. If the men do this, then the women will follow, I promise. You're going to say this with us. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Say, I have shared. I have shared. The cup of the king. The cup of the king. That is. That is. My identity. My identity. I am on a journey. I am on a journey. In which. In which. Purpose. Purpose. Is becoming. Is becoming. More clear. More clear. All the time. All the time. That is my mission. That is my mission. You can sit back down, saints. I hope you're getting the idea that we don't intend to float through this Bible study. We want to engage with you. So remember, these words that we all just said together, they passed your lips. And you must be faithful to treat them as a vow before the living God. Tonight, we will all see Nehemiah shows steadfastness in the faith and calling of Adonai. Nehemiah knows his identity before the king, and Nehemiah stays on mission all the way to completion. There was another Jewish sage from the first century who is known for a saying that we should all reflect on as we begin. It's found in the book of Yaakov, chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You show that you have not just one or three, but exactly two testimonies verse 5 if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind look you have to ask knowing your identity come on You share the cup of the king. Yes. And you have to be on the mission of the king. Yes. Yes. Let's continue to verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Wow. He is a double-minded man. Yeah. (laughs) Unstable in all his ways. That man is of two minds because he does not have two minds. Testimony. Let's keep going in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Nehemiah did not need to grasp, hold on to, or retain the visible image of his relationship to the king. Instead, he went to do the work that others would consider lowly while retaining his identity inwardly. Amen. He proved it by staying steadfast in the commission of the king. Perhaps that reminds you of another Jewish leader. His name was Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Caleb Brown 
Would you mind standing like a man who has two testimonies and praying for us? Before yes. We yes. Yes. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in this body, Lord. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We lift your name, Lord. Would you anoint us to do your work, Lord? Would you unite us as one body, Lord, with one voice, Lord, as we cry out to you, Lord? Come to us, Abba Father. Lord, fill us with power. Fill us with zeal, Lord. We are ready to do the work. Amen. Miss Eldris Bunica, would you please read the text? <laughs> when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up through up that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ona. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem, that says, says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And they have even appointed a prophet to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out, making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Yeah. Amen. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Del Deliah, the son of Metabel, yeah. who was shut up in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realize that God has not sent him, but that he has prophesied against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat. Oh, my God. Because of what they have done, remember also the prophetess Nodiah, the rest of the prophet and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed in the 25th of, of Elul, in the 52 days. Amen. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Come on. All, also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under an oath to him, since he was the son-in-law to she Shechaniah, son of Arah. And his son Jehonanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechai. 
Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. All right, church, we have 19 verses to cover tonight. We have an hour and 30 minutes left to do it in. In a place where there are no men, seek to be a man. The truth is, men will follow a man that they know is holy and masculine. The second truth is, women want to follow men who are holy and masculine, whether they know it or not. We're going to pick up in the first verse, and one of the first things we're going to do for you is free you from Bible difficulties. Let's start, Brother Linton, in chapter 6, in verse 1. When word came to Sambala, Tobiah, Geshem, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. As you study the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, research into many of the names is fraught with difficulties. Often there are several people with the same name. Other times, it is difficult to tell whether or not they are different men or the same man. Unfortunately, Bible dictionaries are not a great help in this regard. They either avoid the topic or they tend to make assumptions without regard to proper chronology and the differences in named ancestors within the text. So surveying some of the most scholarly works often yields entirely different conclusions that were done by respected men. This is even true in determining the nationality of key figures within the book, such as Tobiah. Many translations attempt to simplify the literal Hebrew or Greek, but the fact remains that they are interpretive assumptions that may or may not be correct. Let's look at a few relationships that are expressly stated and done so in the Peshat. This will keep us from endless debate regarding whether Tobiah was an Ammonite or just the servant of an Ammonite that may be Hebrew or simply unofficial within Ammon. Those discussions have no ending and they are not necessary. What is before us is a clear picture of mixed alliances, mixed goals, and the result is a mixed-up people spiritually, if not genetically. We've got a slide for you guys so that you can visualize what we're working with here. Like we said, all of these are in the Peshat, expressly stated in the Word of God. This slide is entitled, Mixed Alliances, Mixed Goals, Mixed People. There's a question mark after that. We're going to get into that. But the relationships in Ezra and Nehemiah are full of names that are difficult for us. And it is easy to simply just read right past them. However, in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, it is important to understand who exactly is in an alliance with Sanballat and Geshem the Arab. Our chapter tonight begins and also ends with the mention of Tobiah. You can see him highlighted on the right side of that screen. And so we will begin and end with insight into Tobiah tonight. Firstly, Tobiah is the son-in-law of a prestigious and verifiable Israelite clan head. You can see Ara in the top center of your screen there. 
You guys see that? Yes. Yeah. Ara's granddaughter is married to Tobiah. Tobiah's son married the daughter of an all-star. He was an all-star wall, part of an all-star wall-building family. You can see that on the left side of the screen. How many of you guys remember Meshulam, son of Berechiah, from Nehemiah chapter 3? Yeah. That dude did some serious building. Yes. Look at his relation. Tobiah's son, Jehoanan, married Meshulam's daughter. The name Tobiah is Hebrew. It means goodness Yahweh, or goodness of Yahweh. Tobiah named his own son Jehohanan, which is also a Hebrew name and means Yahweh is favorable. So this all leads to various assumptions that are at odds with each other. The bottom line is that Tobiah is presented in a list of enemies that are opposing the building project of Nehemiah and of God. And yet, Tobiah is related by marriage to an Israelite clan head and an all-star wall-building family. Nehemiah 2.10 introduces him as a man who is greatly displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That's what's concerning him. Needless to say, this is a very odd position for the son-in-law of a verified Israelite clan head and of a man whose son also married a daughter of an all-star wall-building family. It reminds us very much of the misplaced sympathies that Christians often have for family members that spend their own lives, sometimes their whole lives, Terrible. opposing the identity and objective of Christians. Wow. We'd like to begin with you in Mark 3, verse 31. <coughs> then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Saints mixed alliances, mixed goals, and mixed up people, well, they never sway men like Jesus or Nehemiah. The answer to this age-old problem is always to clearly identify your Self as a man who shares the cup of the true king. Amen. Then to fully commit to the commissioning that you have received by staying on task Ooh. with your job. Yeah. These will be two testimonies that you have chutzpah and you are in the family of God. Let's look at this from 1 Corinthians 15. It will begin in <laughs> verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Well, tonight's chapter will end with men still expressing confusion that results from muddied relationships and commitments that are not clear-cut Nehemiah is unwavering in his assessment and presentation of the truth. Hallelujah. This is because he knows who he is, yeah. and he knows what and where he is to do it. Yeah. This is really good advice for the men that have answered God's calling. Amen. Let's take a look at Proverbs 4, 
23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. You see, the company that we keep and the subjects that we entertain in discussion, they either strengthen the identity and call of God or they pollute it. When mixed alliances, mixed goals, and mixed up men are the company that you keep, it has the potential to contaminate the wellspring of your identity and your calling. Tonight, notice the steadfast positioning of Nehemiah, though. Reflect on the words of Jesus, and both will be a safeguard for you. Do you want to be safeguarded? Yes. Yes. Let's continue in Proverbs 4, 13. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. The commission that you received from the king, it's your life now, saints. This exchange of your priorities for his happened in the moment that you shared the cup with the king. The very cup that brings you into communion with both his and your death. And then resurrection into a new life. Let's do another Proverbs. Proverbs 25, verse 26. Like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Believers that purport to just be ministering to these mixed up people all too often end up as formerly righteous men who are now defined by the fact that they gave way to the wicked and now are in a list of those who oppose Adonai's objective. If you want to get messed up in the kingdom, then get mixed up with the world. Remember that your primary identity, though, as a man, is one who shares the cup of the king, and you are now commissioned by by him in a great work that does not delay, defer, or deter until its completion. We're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62 together. There are so many parallels between Nehemiah and Jesus that we could do this all night. But this is where we wanted to settle for the time being. As they were walking along the road, the man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Boxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Saints, we are happy to tell you Nehemiah is fit for the service of God. He is not going to look back. And neither are the men in this room. As we pick up in verse 2 together, the list of those that oppose the work, well, it's Sambalat, Tobiah, an Arab named Geshem. Nehemiah has already closed the breaches in the wall, and all that the city lacks, well, is proper doors, which incidentally is what we are trying to establish, to reinforce, to create for you this evening. Sandbalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, 
let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm him. Yeah. Nehemiah knew that they were planning to assassinate him. He knew this because he was clear in his identity and he was clear in his objective. These men opposed both from the beginning of the book. Nehemiah will not share a cup of coffee with these men because he shared the cup of communion with the true king of the world. The invitation to sin that will lead you into death is always a casual invitation until the day that sin gives birth to your death. However, many of the leading wall builders and the clan heads of Israel probably did not have this level of clarity. After all, they were relatives by marriage to Tobiah. They likely met with him regularly without even perceiving the threat that they had let inside of the wall. As we move forward in the assassination plot, you guys take special notice of Nehemiah's steadfast commitment, his commitment to stay within his identity, and his resolve to stay on the task that God had given him. He does this with patience and firmness that is uncommon among mankind, but required among true men of God. Amen! Now, 
Look at how clearly he is able to see them as a result of his identity and calling based on how they react to his identity and his calling. Picking up at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Wow. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So in the light of Jesus' response to invitation from men with mixed alliances, I think we can all agree that Nehemiah was more measured. But if one of them acted more righteously, you would have to admit that it was Jesus. No matter how you feel about these kinds of confrontations. The one who was more harsh was more righteous. What? Now, it's time to contextualize this situation to your own life. You guys ready? In Nehemiah's case, as well as in Jesus' case, these were very important leaders that they were dealing with, yes? Would you agree? Yes. These were men in your family or related to your family by marriage. That is the context here. Turn and look in your own family and the marriages in your own family. Christian, wouldn't knowing your identity and staying on your God-given task be a benefit to your discernment? Just like it was for Nehemiah? Just like it was for Jesus in this passage right here? How these people react to your identity and your calling, well, it tells you exactly what is going on within their hearts. Yeah. You know, many times our own discernment is worn down <clears throat> over time. It's worn down by repeated requests, like somebody just over and over and over again, you, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. Our hope is for repentance. Even when no indication or alteration to our orders have been given by the king, Perhaps Nehemiah is going to be more instructive to us about this topic as we continue reading. You guys ready for that? Yeah. yeah. Let's go verse 4. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Same answer. Ah, same answer. That's good. So what was the magic answer? <laughs> what was the answer that was even more gentle than Jesus? Let's review the answer in Nehemiah 6, verse 3, where it says, So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Wow. Why should I stop? Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Why? That's good. As many times as we are asked the same question and present, is presented with the same scenarios, perhaps we should consider Nehemiah's magic answer. <laughs> if repentance or ministry needs to occur... They always have the option of joining in the work by coming 
to you. That's yeah. a good yeah. word. However, if you are in the habit of going down to them, you may be in danger of your identity, endangering your own identity and your own calling. Absolutely. In the context of Nehemiah 6, remember that this is an assassination plot against Nehemiah. <laughs> if Nehemiah received word from the king of the known world that he would like him to meet with them, then I'm sure Nehemiah would have done it. But Nehemiah could not be moved by four or five requests on the same topic. What is wrong with us that because somebody asks multiple times, we assume that maybe it's our job to minister to them? What indication of repentance was given? What indication that the conversation will go any different than last time was given? The only indication that is happening is that your work is not important enough to prioritize it above their emotional need. Woo. Nehemiah sets us an example in this regard. And if you live by it, you will not only complete the work, but you will also honor the king who sent you on the work. Amen. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter uh -oh. in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. Must be that. Well, Geshem says it. <laughs> yeah. That you and the Jews are flight to revolt, and therefore you are building up, building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. So, Saints, there are a few things we want to break down here. But to start with, the letter is expressly called an unsealed letter. This is the equivalent of a Facebook post in the ancient world. It being unsealed is intended for people to read it as it is being carried to the location. It's intentionally proliferating the information. The idea is that the enemies have not been able to trap and kill Nehemiah because he will not leave his work. They can't kill his identity and his calling. So they've resorted to murdering his reputation. The accusations that they lay out are as follows. All, every one of them, everybody, all the nations are saying that you and the Jews are planning to revolt. Next, in our personal favor, Geshem has verified that it's true. It's true. Well, it must be if he says so. Your wall building is of nefarious intent. We have all heard that you are going to be made King, we have all heard that you have arranged prophets to support your claim. We want to avoid the consequences that you will face, Nehemiah, when this gets back to the king. I personally have been the recipient of many unsealed letters. A lie will go around the world before truth has its, a chance to put its pants on on any given day. Of course, there is no truth in any of these claims. But you have to ask yourself, where did they get this line of thought? Maybe the Sunday school answer just popped into your mind. The devil. Satan. Well, you're right. But the devil always mixes half-truths to make whole lies. We suspect that these details came from twisting conversations that took place between Tobiah and his relatives. Remember... 
He was married to the daughter of a verified Israelite clan head. And his son was married to an all-star wall-building family. How many times have your words been twisted after a meeting with people that you never should have been talking to in the first place? When you keep mixed company, don't be surprised if they mix your words to their own liking. Look, it has always been this way, and it is observable in the life of Jesus. Read with us Matthew 26, verse 60 through 61. This is, the tr- this is the trial of Jesus and his arrest. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Jesus often spoke in parables to deliberately hide the secrets of the kingdom from those national relatives that would twist anything that he said to their own liking because of their own mixed alliances and muddied springs. Put this into perspective why we're saying national relatives. Everybody in Israel is a father, a mother, a brother, sister, or a cousin. And he still was careful about the things that he said. You see, this passage is an example of Jesus' straightforward speech simply being twisted to mean something other than what was conveyed. Jesus did talk about the destruction of the temple of his body and its restoration in three days. Now those pure words are being used by muddy relatives to put him to death. We're going to see another one of these instances in Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin reading together in verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. Wait, wait one moment here. Did Jesus really advocate for tax fraud? No. No, 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 he didn't. Now, this is a classic example of pure words of Jesus being twisted. As these muddy relatives simply could not help themselves but to twist something that was pure and to make it muddy. Let's continue in verse 3. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. It is as you say, Jesus replied. Amen. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Jesus' words did stir up the people all over Judea. And it did start in Galilee. However, this is another case of muddy relatives twisting something pure to to appear as seditious. You could go on like this with example after example in the trial of Jesus or of Stephen, or of Paul, or of any other man of God. Yeah. Yeah. We do have the benefit of knowing that according to John 5, Jesus never spoke a single word unless it came from his Father and King. Can we say the same? 
Oh, my goodness. Let, let that set on you for a minute. But it's, it's my niece. I, I had to go. They've asked me three years in a row. Did your king send you? And if he did, which is a giant question mark, did you speak only what he told you to say? Then why are you surprised that at the next Thanksgiving, the few things that you did say were all twisted to murder your reputation? I think those guys are in a cult. Yeah, well, should you have even gone to meet with them in the first place? It's worth thinking about. Shouldn't we, like Nehemiah, be more careful in unguarded meetings with mixed relatives? Yeah. 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 Proverbs 29, verse 8, is going to help us out. Mockers stir up a city, but wise men turn anger away. If a wise man goes to court with a fool, the fool rages and scoffs. It's a generational blessing. We're both learning something about that. Yeah. And there is no peace. Bloodthirsty men hate a man of integrity, and seek to kill Kill. the upright. Guys, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem, they're all mockers just trying to stir up trouble. They have no real genuine concern for Nehemiah, God, or the great commission that he has been given. Nehemiah does not need to go to court or casual coffee with them because he shares the cup of the king. Amen. He was commissioned by the king directly. If we will take the same attitude and limit our activities to those commissioned by the king, well, it will not stop the attempts on our lives, but it will mean that even if they succeed and do kill us, we will never die outside of the will of God. Come on. Yeah. Amen. These enemies started with an assassination plot. If they can kill him, they want to kill him. Then resorted to slandering Nehemiah's reputation when they couldn't find a way to kill him physically. And they're not done yet. But their hearts, well, they're going to be revealed through Nehemiah's patient and faithful action. Nehemiah's lack of dialogue with them actually serves to show what is in their heart. It's not unclear. It's not muddied. Nehemiah was crystal clear in his identity, crystal clear for the reason he was on this planet. He's commissioned by the king. He was given work by the king. He's open to all who want to help him in those two facets. But he is not having lengthy discussions with anyone that doesn't. You know, Samuel Clement said, do not argue with a fool. He will drag you down to his level and beat you in his experience. Those were wise words. Brother Linton, will you pick up in verse 8? I send him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up. Out of your head. I love this response. Unfortunately, it is not in the Bible. Can we show you what the dynamic translation obscures? Let's look at Nehemiah 6, 8. Then I sent unto them, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own leave, your own heart. The fact is that the intellect and logic of these men were not the issue that Nehemiah was addressing. These men were speaking accusations that they knew were false and doing it straight out of the muddy spring 
of their own hearts. That's why he didn't engage them. All too often, it's our position that more words and better explanations are what is needed in dealing with our mixed associations. The truth is that what is needed is some sign that their muddy hearts want to be purified. Listen to Psalm 14.1. And you Acts 1 students will remember this. The fool says in his mind. No. no. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. You see, when you compare Jesus and Nehemiah, it becomes clear that there are times that we will hear from God and need to speak straight to the hearts of muddied men. We know in advance that they may twist our words, but we also know that the king orders us to speak. There are also clearly times when the righteous thing to do is avoid extended interaction with muddied men because the king has not ordered you to speak and you would be at risk of muddying your alliances in doing so. Somebody say amen. Let us know that you're understanding what we're saying. So each of us loves the following lines from a poem entitled If by Rudyard Kipling. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. These lines come from the concept of the ideal man. They have moved generations of readers in that regard. And yet tonight, we think that you should consider that it's only true if the words were given to you by God and if your words were ordered by your king. Otherwise, if they were not, you are just pretending to be a man and likely to become just as muddy as Tobiah was. Let's continue in verse 9. They were all tried to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too, get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. But I pray, now strengthen my hands. Come on, I don't want to be one that's pretending to be a man. I want to be the real thing. I want to respond like Nehemiah, and when I'm confronted with fallacies, I say, I'm going to pray, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah doesn't question his identity. He is a man that has shared the cup of the king. Nehemiah does not question his commission. He is a man that will stay on his assigned task and do it without deviation. Nehemiah only asks for the strength to complete the task that his divine identity requires. This is something that every man, a real man in this room, can learn from. Let's engage with that for a minute. When you have conversations with muddied people, muddied alliances, and usually because you're associated by marriage or water of the womb, and you walk away questioning your identity in Christ, that's probably because you weren't supposed to be in that situation in the first place. When you walk away not sure about the work that you have been commissioned to do. You'll delay it. You'll deter it. You'll defer it. 
You probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. You are not ministering to them. They are ministering to you, but not as an agent of God. What we need to learn to ask for is not better circumstances. It's not more soldiers. It's certainly not more words. We need to learn to say, strengthen my hands for what you actually called me to do. We need to know who we are, and we need to know why we are here, what it is that we are called to do. These two things are like great, big testimonies that help you stand as a man. Judges 16, verse 28, gives us an example. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. Have you heard that before? Oh God, please strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson may have lost his two eyes, but in that process he regained his two testimonies. In the midst of life and death situations, remember, remember that your identity was given from birth and stay on your assigned task and ask God to strengthen you while you're on it. Remember this, even if you die, you will accomplish the work that you were born for and rise again to share your cup with the king in eternity. Saints, this is the life that we are to live. Verse 10. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the doors, the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Yeah, our enemy is nothing if not persistent. And he varies his attacks even when they have the same motive. You remember from verse 1 that the city did not yet have doors in the gates. However, we find out in this verse that the temple did have both a gate and a door. This means that the temple was the only safe place to hide behind a door in the event of an attack. However, somebody say however. However. Nehemiah was not sent to hide. Nehemiah carries the identity of the one who shares the cup of the king. Nehemiah was given a task and a commission from that king. He would have had to deny his own identity and deny his calling to run from what the king had already told him to do. Nehemiah is in a place where there are no men, and he's going to show himself to be a man. Now, it tells us something about Shemaiah. As we look at this next line and consider all that it means, you should evaluate Shemaiah. It seems to us that he must be a friend of Nehemiah for them to even be having this conversation. In other instances, Nehemiah does not even consider holding a meeting. In this case, he's meeting with the man. The only reason he would do that is he thought they were friends, and he thought he knew him, and he thought he supported the work of God. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to 
save his life. I will not go. Amen. I realized that God had not sent me, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired me. He had, he had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Now what you're seeing is that Nehemiah already determined his course of action. It had already been set by the king before this even happened. This allowed him to be able to discern the situation and the true motives of the conspirators. Nehemiah cannot go, into, go enter the temple for at least two reasons. First, he shares the cup of the king. And he cannot be subject to fear, but he must complete the task. Amen. Second, he's not a Levite. And Nehemiah is not willing to break the law to save his life. Oh. So Numbers chapter 18, verses 6 and 7 are going to give us a little insight from the law about what's going on here. I myself have selected your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to do the work at the tent of meeting. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I am giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. So the very fact that Shemaiah suggests this particular course of action, well, it proves something to Nehemiah. It proved that his prophecy to Nehemiah was false. This is good instruction for us charismatics, right? Yes. We love that you guys believe that you have a word from God. But it can only be received as a word from God if it agrees with every other word from God revealed right. in the scripture, yeah, right? right? This is particularly important on emotional subjects like dealing with mixed relatives and mixed alliances. Again, Nehemiah sets an extraordinary example for us. We believe that he is able to do this for two very specific reasons that are transferable to you. First, Nehemiah was secure in his identity as a man Come on. because he truly shared the cup of the great king. And secondly, Nehemiah was secure in his function as a man because it was commissioned by a great king. Amen. If we can grab hold of those two principles, yeah. our lives will change dramatically. Amen. You can evaluate people's prophecies, their statements, and their Facebook posts about you. If you are true to the identity that God has given you and true to the work that he has given you. When the comments begin to try to erode the identity that the king commissioned you with, or the work that he commissioned you to, we now know the source. It doesn't matter whether it's an obvious enemy like Geshem, who is an Arab, or Samballot, who is a moon god lover, or it is somebody that is more nefarious like Tobiah that has mixed alliances, or it is Shemaiah, somebody that you thought was a close friend that has now become a sellout like Balaam trying to profit by putting words in God's mouth. Mm -hmm. 
So let me ask you a question, church. Do you drink from the cup of the king? Yes. Yes. Do you share a cup with the king? Yes. yes. Then consider Psalm 116, 12 through 14. Because in a world that's mixed and muddied, men of God are going to have to get a firm grasp on their testimonies and what they're called to do. Amen. Verse 12 says, how can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness to me? Come on. I will lift up the cup of salvation Come on. and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. We started this evening with Pastor Judah walking through some certain words, some vows that pass through your lips. And it sounded something like this. All right, men of God, it is time that we reach down and grab hold of exactly two, not three, but two testimonies that help to define your masculinity. We want you to stand up and say them with us. I have shared the cup of the king. That is my identity. I am on a journey in which purpose is becoming more clear all of the time. That is my mission. That ring a bell for you, saints? Yes. We want to tell you tonight that now is the time for you to begin to fulfill your vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Tonight you possess your identity and you walk in your calling before your God. You possess an identity that comes from fellowship with the king. You possess God-ordained task given to you by the king. Nothing else in your life should erode those two things. They not only have to be your priority, they have to be your only priority. The king knows when you need to meet with people. The king knows who you should be having fellowship with. How about we let him direct it? Let's start in Matthew 26 and talk for a minute about our identity that comes from sharing a cup with the king. This will be verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. Christian, every time that you have ever taken communion, you have shared in the cup of the king. You have shared in the statement that says, I will give my life as you gave your life. I will prioritize my life as you, as you, king, prioritize your life. I will share in your death, and I will share in your resurrection. Nowhere in there is there an ellipsis for other activities that you are made to feel like are emotionally important because you're emotionally indebted since you don't know who you are. You are a sharer in the cup with the king. Now we must show it through living in the identity that he has given us alone and taking on the mission that he gave us alone as if it were the only mission that you had. Nothing else matters. When you begin to live in that, the world that is muddy all around you starts to become crystal clear. 
A man who knows his identity and knows his calling is no longer swayed by every dog that is barking at him along the way. He is no longer moved by what the popular crowd thinks about what he does or does not do. He cannot be guilted into walking away from what his king commissioned him to do. None of us think we do those things. But how easily do we lose the perspective that says, he extended me the cup and I took it. Now my life, all decisions, all priorities have to flow from him and the cup that we share. Nehemiah 6.13 lets us know that Shemaiah was a sellout like Balaam, a man who would put words in the mouth of God for his own profit. More than that, a man like Cain, who would have his brother killed to prevent his favor by the father. Unfortunately, these kinds of prophets are everywhere, and our mixed relatives love them. Love them. They watch them on TV, <laughs> and, they, and may even send them money. Wow. Yeah, they buy their CDs and tell you you should listen to them. Yeah. They have always been around and will be until the day of Christ's appearing. The thing is today. The thing is today. You have a chance to change something. Hallelujah. You can become more like Nehemiah and Jesus. Amen. Be unintimidated. Yes. Be unafraid. Yes. This comes through being secure in your call and confident in your mission. Come on, Church, tonight you can say, I have two testimonies. Yeah. In a world of mixed and muddied relationships, you can ask, does this align with my identity in Christ? Or does this align with the commission that he is giving me? And if it is no to either of those, don't be, don't be intimidated. Right. Rise up with chutzpah. Some frank pastoral speech is this meeting has nothing to do with your relatives. This meeting has everything to do with you knowing who you are in Christ. Yeah. Standing up in that identity and completing the task for which you were born. Amen. The other conversations are simply us telling you get rid of distractions. Your king will tell you if they want to repent. Your king will tell you if you need to minister to them. Your king will tell you whether you should respond to a Facebook post or accept a gift or any of the other tricks of the enemy that are like Tobiah and Shemaiah that are all designed for one thing, to get you to slow down, deter, stop, or defer the work of God. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and how she and the rest of her prophetess have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Yeah, it was. The wall was completed. Yeah. You know, Nehemiah, yeah. at the end of all of this, could stand up and say, look at that. The wall is finished. It's completed. It's yeah. done. I've done my mission. Jesus could also, at the very end, say, it is finished. Guys, that is our hope for every man that is sitting in this room with us tonight. That every man will be able to stand up and say, at the end of your life and your commission and your call, it is finished because you did everything that God commissioned you to do. How many of you have been to a funeral in this room? 
How many of you have been to more than one funeral? More lies are told at funerals than they are at an American wedding. We need to understand something. You don't know at what hour your clock will stop. But you do know what God has commissioned you to do. You do not have time to do things other than what God has commissioned you, or you may be in danger of not completing the work. So we get after our identity in Christ. We get after the work in Christ because we are all longing to hear certain words. That's right. Words, Matthew 25, 21. These are the words that we are longing to hear, church. Yes. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Yes. Guys, we have made it our very practice to make this verse our aim. But when there is muddiness that is getting mixed in, How easy is it to get drawn into that? How easy is it to experience muddiness and that muddiness get on you? Get in your heart, get in your thoughts, get in your speech, get in your actions. It's so easy for that to happen. It's easy to say, I want this and I'm going to do it. But our actions at the very end of the day will prove whether our words are true or not. Yeah. Our suggestion is that you reflect on this teaching so that your own identity and your own calling become secure. How can you help a brother if you're not secure in your own identity because you won't know the one who's commissioned you for the work on the wall to help your brother? But when you become secure in your own identity, you know how to hear from the one who commissioned you. Then you will be able to complete the work that he's ordained for you from the beginning. In the face of any opposition. The people who do this are the ones who get to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you want to hear those words? Yes. With all of our heart, we're trying to instruct you on how to get there. Okay. Understand that in Nehemiah's scenario, these are three regional governors. They, They rule in the areas right around. His own people have been plagued with illegal marriage and mixed situations. And now there are rumors spreading throughout the city in an open Facebook post that Nehemiah has intentions that he doesn't have. He doesn't address any of it. He says, that's a reflection of your heart. And he keeps doing what God told him to do so that the man's greatest prayer life is simply remember. Remember me, oh my God. Because he's only trying to please one commissioning king. That is so good if you will dig into it. Of course, it'll take grabbing hold of a genuine set of two testimonies. And that's how you'll show yourself to be a biblical man. Verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Saints, in all honesty, this passage is a lot of fun because we've seen it repeat through the years. Yeah. And 
You remember that we began this with false accusations that all the nations are saying this is happening. Well, this occurs, this turn of events where they lose their self-confidence, when men like Nehemiah refuse to lose their confidence. Come on, man. Nehemiah refused to lose his confidence because it was given through the cup of the king. And there is no substitute for that. Men of this world, mixed men, their confidence will melt in the fires of your faithful obedience. Oh, yeah. Saints, whether that is this week, it's next week, or it is if the appearing of Christ makes no difference. We stand until they melt. Come on. The masculine and the holy man, he will prevail in the work of God because Jesus says so. Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. These were not questions on the part of Christ. They were commands and they were promises as he is securing his identity in this moment, saying, Peter, this is who I've made you to be. Peter, this is who you are. Peter, this is what we are building. And Peter spent the rest of his life being faithful to those two testimonies. If we did that, we would show ourselves to be able to recover from any mistake. We would show ourselves to be faithful to the end. And we would hear the same words that I know Peter heard. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The wall is only half its height, but the breaches are closing. Peter's job was to join with other men, men like John, where they showed no fear, no intimidation, even in the face of mixed relatives. And they said, judge for yourself whether we should obey you rather than our God. And they got it done. And we can do the same thing. We are still building. We've not heard the words yet that the task is completed. In fact, we're finding out that we have new nations to be in. Now is the time to get clear in our identity. Now is the time to get clear in our call. And that in and of itself, will teach you to discern the actions of others that are around you. Let's pick up in verse 17 and read through 19. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, Uh since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Harab, and his son, Jehoanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds. Wow. And then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate him. That sounds like a good deed. So we've been watching the character of these nobles for a couple weeks. We've been seeing them do things that don't line up with the actions of the men around them who want to join into the work. (laughs) This is the point where we understand why they are the way that they are. See, not every man that wears the title noble behaves in a noble fashion. That's the truth. These nobles in Judah are muddied wells and polluted springs. And now you know how they became that way. They have been sending letters to Tobiah the entire time, commingling. Bad company corrupts good character. And that's why we saw in Nehemiah 3, verse 5, says, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired. 
but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Stoop to serve. Look at Nehemiah 5. This this is the next verse in this progression here in 6 and 7. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. Guys, the nobles seem to always be in the wrong place at the (coughs) wrong time. Just as Treaster's verse said, they would not stoop to serve the Lord. Nehemiah taking counsel with his king, he discovered the nobles are at it again. And in this verse, in this chapter 6 tonight, we see the nobles again in a very similar situation. But it's not just the nobles in Nehemiah's day that we have a problem with. So let's look at Matthew 21:43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Who are those people producing the fruits? The ones who do not view servitude to the brotherhood as stooping down, but actually rising up in faith and doing what God has commissioned them for. So let's help paint an overall picture at this point. We told you that Nehemiah, his name means what? Comfort. I'm going to do this again until I have your participation. What does Nehemiah's name mean? Comfort. Nehemiah brings comfort to the true people of Israel. But we also told you he was the afflictor of those who were already comfortable. He comes up on the scene. They rally around and say, yeah, let's build a wall. It'll be good for us. Then we get to doing the work, and the nobles do not want to participate in the hard work of building the wall. We get to Nehemiah 5, and we realize these same nobles, they're oppressing the poor of the land. Now we get to Nehemiah 6, and you realize they're doing this the whole time because while they cheered Nehemiah on, They were associated with the enemy. See, Jesus is constantly displayed as the comforter of the oppressed. He does not snuff out a weak wick. He goes to those who are lost, broken, and destitute and raises them up. But every harsh statement you've ever heard was towards the Judean leadership, the nobles in the land. Well, we've come to the place where Nehemiah is putting a stop to it and causing the wall to be built despite them. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time, He's going to raise up new leadership. He will raise up men who will stand and shepherd Israel and will lead them, binding up the lame and causing them to become strong. Let's talk new leadership for a minute. Is it only the people in Nehemiah's day that needed some new leadership? Is it only the people in Jesus' day who needed some new leadership? The problem with the leaders is they had mixed alliances. They were equally comfortable with Tobiah as they were Nehemiah. They could speak kindly to Nehemiah to his face, but send gossiping letters behind his back. The body of Christ needs new leadership these days. We need to get acquainted with the true king. We need to take up our own new Identity, the one that came from your death and resurrection in Christ. And we need to take up the commissioned 
work of God. Because the kingdom is for those that produce the fruit of the kingdom. Not those that go along well and get along well with everybody who is already ruining the kingdom of God. The kingdom is at hand. It is upon us. It is started in our hearts and we make it a reality on earth. Not everyone who says that they are noble is actually noble. Jesus actually taught us a pretty beautiful parable on this and we're going to close our time with it. So let's reflect on what produces nobility. Luke 8, 11 through 15. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries riches and pleasures and they do not mature but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word retain it and by persevering produce a crop you see it is those that hear their identity from the words of the king it's those that hear their identity and they retain it and they persevere in their identity that the king has given them and produces a crop with it, that's nobility. Come on. It's those that hear the commission, yeah. the call that God has given this body and each person in it, and retain that commission, constantly working in it every day and persevering in that commission that produces a crop. That is what it means to be a man. God is building some men in this church, isn't he? He is raising us up to stand on our identity and to persevere in the call that he has given us, to grow in it, to know it, to do it, to perpetrate it, to do everything with our identity and our call. And that's how we're going to raise up a crop of other men as we go out. Amen? Amen. I'm going to hand it off to the pastor. Stand to your feet. We have a great need before us tonight, and it's one that we know that Adonai will empower you to rise and meet. The kingdom needs you to be a man. We've said it, these men have repeated it for us to help us to get this. We have shared in the cup of the king, and that gives us our identity. The importance of this, what I saw was five very godly men who were laboring to not just get you to understand the words, but to get you to do something inside of your heart and say, you have an identity and it's been handed to you by our great king. You have shared in a cup with the king. It is time for us to actually act like we have an identity with Christ. Because we do. 
What does it mean if we really get a hold and understand that we have taken the cup and shared in this cup with the king, a communion with the king? You know what it will eliminate in your heart? Insecurities that make you yes. wonder about everything that you yes. do. Amen. Is this right? Can I look to Eric and see if it, can I look to somebody else and see this is right? How about you look to the one that you shared a cup with? How about you look to your king and said, are you pleased with me, mighty one? Because if you are, to hell with everything else. Yes! <laughs> that we might be men who stand up and have two yes. testimonies Hallelujah. about our identity Amen. and our commission. We've shared the cup and we have the commission with him, so therefore we have a task and we will not stop Amen. until it's completed. Amen. No matter how many times the enemy tries to come and distract no matter how many insecurities that you think you have, crush them because you have an identity and get about the work that's before us. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Jesus says in John 4, 34, My food, you want to talk about what sustains me? is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. It's not enough that you've started the work. It must be that we finish the work that God put before us, and we only do that by being men who walk in their identity. You know Hebrews 10 very well about not being those who shrink back, but I want to catch another verse with you. 1 John 2, verse 28 says, And now... Little children, abide in him. Walk in your identity so that when he, he appears, we may have confidence. How do you fix your confidence problem? Walk in your identity. Do the work that God put in your hands to do. And we won't shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has actually been born of him and has their identity in him. What an incredible Amen. night for us. Yeah. Identity by sharing in the cup with the king and a commission that gives us our work that we cannot stop until we've completed. Yeah. Amen. Before these brothers pray, let us save some work at the end of this meeting. The number one question that I get every time we have a meeting like this is what happened? <laughs> Nothing's happened. There's not a singular instance that we are referring to. We are looking at the text and believing that it is preparing us for what will happen next week. Yeah. If you have two hands, raise them up. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to rejoice that God has given us one hand on the right, one hand on the left, each to grab a hold of your two testimonies and have a greater grasp of your identity and your purpose. As we pray, we'll be with the attitude of, Lord, strengthen my hand. Mighty God, we thank you for your identity, your cup, that we get to join in with you and drink of that same suffering. For the purpose that you have given us, we say now strengthen our hands to grasp it even in a greater way that we may finish your work as a body.
established here on earth as a body joining you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. amen.